Okay, thanks for coming. Um, we're, we're at a really interesting place in the calendar, and I want to talk about um, different sort of, for me anyway, kind of mind-bending aspects of time. Um, we'll start on sort of a simple level, and then hopefully uh, we'll get a little deeper. And uh, bless you. And uh, let's just begin uh, at the beginning, so to speak, which is that, that we just celebrated yesterday Tuba'av. <clears throat> Tuba'av, uh, the Gomorrah says, is one of the two happiest days of the whole calendar. Uh, that and Yom Kippur. And there are a lot of reasons, we won't go through them all right now, why uh, Tuba'av was so happy. Just to give you some very quick highlights, it's when the Jews in the desert realized that the 40-year uh, decree of wandering uh, was over. And um, it, was also, uh, it was also a day where... Uh, where it was known for people getting married uh, among, among the Jewish people. And, and so there were great celebrations there. A lot of people uh, met their wives and things like that. So, so it's, um, but there are many other highlights to the day. But what's so striking about Tuba'av um, is that it comes right on the heels of the saddest day of the year. And you, we just went through Tishabav which is, everyone knows, just the, the blackest day, um, which just uh, commemorates the destructions of the two holy temples and, and really all of the suffering throughout uh, Jewish history um, can more or less be, be traced back to that day. So, so it's just really interesting that Hashem sort of consciously uh, structured the calendar in such a way where we go from really the depths of sadness and despair all the way to the heights of happiness in just like a just like a a blink of a blink of the eye, um, and there's a real lesson uh, to all of us just what that means. <clears throat> there's um, actually if someone could bring me a a a, a, a sitter. If you, Devorah, over there, the, uh, the, the black sedurum over there, maybe if you could grab me one of those. Uh, I, I'll show you uh, an, an illustration of, uh, of this in a moment. But, but the notion that Hashem can bring salvation right away is, is a concept that we have to live with. Um, there, there's something, thank you, there's, 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 there's something that... Uh, that I'd like to share with you. Um, it, it's my understanding, this is me talking right now, it's my understanding and, and it, of what it means when, when we're praying for Mashiach every single day. For a lot of people, I know this has been true for me, and I, I know it's true for other people as well, for a lot of people, the notion of praying for Mashiach every day or, um, or awaiting Mashiach every day is actually something that causes a lot of uh, frustration and actually, actually sometimes, um, ironically, since this is a very high level to pray for the redemption of the world all the time, actually can, can cause in some people a level of disbelief. Why? Because people are davening and they're davening. Every day they're davening and with all their heart, and then uh, another day passes, another year passes, and Mashiach isn't here. 
And sometimes it, it can actually uproot, God forbid, a person's belief. Well, first we need as a foundation um, to understand that every prayer is answered and that no is an answer. Or as I like to say, not yet. <laughs> not yet. You know, it's... But, but if, if a person is greeted with seeming silence from God, it doesn't mean that the prayer hasn't been heard and it doesn't mean the prayer hasn't been received. And that's such an important foundation because we're very, we're, you know, we're made out of flesh and blood and we're very sensitive creatures, human beings. And if we don't hear a response, the normal human reaction is to feel as though we're being ignored. And we're never being ignored. We're never being ignored. God is the opposite of that, if you can say such a thing. You know, and I can tell you just personally in my own life, there was a period where I very much wanted to get married. And, um, and I davened for years, really, and it didn't happen. And, uh, and then finally, thank God, I, bless you, I didn't meet my wife. And I looked back on that period where I was praying for it so much, and I realized in retrospect that I wasn't ready. And that had I gotten married at that period of my life, it probably would not have been a great thing. And that's, that's all well and good in retrospect from the standpoint of having the blessing. But nonetheless, this is something that, 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 I, that I experienced in my own life. Um, so this notion of davening for Mashiach, the way, the way I understand it is, is, is to understand not that he's coming today, He's coming today. He's coming today. He's coming today. And then you see, he didn't come. He didn't come. He didn't come. He didn't come. I, I think what the sages are trying to communicate to us, on, on one level anyway, is to have the consciousness, he can come today. He can come today. He can come today. And of course, our tradition is, there's always someone alive who Hashem can make Mashiach. And by the way, I don't know that that necessarily means that the person is walking around thinking that he's that person, or knows that he's that person, or thinking that he's that person. In fact, you could argue that that's an argument that he isn't <laughs> a candidate. <laughs> but anyway, that aside. Um, and But there's always... Hashem can bring Mashiach at any time. That's no problem for Hashem. Hashem can do anything. And if someone has... This idea of consciousness that Mashiach can be coming today, then all of a sudden it's like, well, do I want to yell at this person right now? Mashiach might be coming today. This might be the moment before Mashiach. You know what? Maybe I can let this go. And in other words, it becomes a transformative consciousness. The idea of, of understanding that he could come today that actually helps bring him. Because a person lets go of a lot of different things. Because, you know, it could happen at any moment. So I, I'm making a, maybe a fine distinction here, and I want to make sure that I'm communicating. There's a world of difference between saying, I'm diving, he should come today, and he didn't come. So that's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is, to live with the notion that it's a reality that it could happen today.
for the purpose of that influencing how you see the world and how you view your interactions. In other words, it's the concept of Mashiach coming is an opening for how you conduct your interpersonal affairs for your life, as opposed to an end in itself. He either came or he didn't come, or he could come, but so what? No, he could come, therefore, he could come. So, that means how I'm talking to you, or how I'm receiving you, it makes all the difference in the world. Okay, so this is a high level to be able to have this, have this, uh, you know, as, a, as an active um, guiding force in their relationships, but... I, I, I believe that, 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 that this is truer than just, you know, the, 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 the other way. Okay, so there's one of my favorite lines in Tehillim, which is an illustration of how uh, redemption can come out of nowhere. <clears throat> Psalm 121, uh, is, uh, <clears throat> it's one of the most famous psalms. You see, you say it a lot in uh, congregations, especially when they're praying for uh, people who are who are sick, who need a refuah, or if there are difficult times in the world. So it says, "Shir lamalos esai inai el harim ma'ayin yavu ezri." So to translate that, "Shir lamalos," a song of ascents. Um, I lift my eyes to the mountains, ma'ayin, from where yavu ezri. Where, my, where, where will my help come? So it's a very, you know, sort of open-hearted plea to God. I'm, I'm looking up to you, God. I'm looking up to the mountains. And also the, the Avos, Avraham, Yitzchak, and Yaakov are also called the, the mountains. I'm looking up, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm looking up to the highest place, to the Avos, to you, Hashem. From where is my help going to come? So the Vilna Gon reads this line differently. And I love him forever for this alone. Says, he says, this word mayayin, instead of reading it, which is the, I guess, the, the more conventional way of reading mayayin is where. From where will my help come? Well, ain, mayayin, mayayin, mayayin. May is, mem is a prefix in Hebrew, it means from. Ain means nothing. So, w- plugging that in, I lift my eyes up to the mountains. For my help will come out of nowhere. <laughs> it's just, I'm going to walk into a coffee shop and I'm going to bump into someone and it's sort of like, wow, hey, how'd you meet your husband? Well, I walked into a coffee shop and I wasn't expecting it, but out of nowhere, you know, I said it a while back, but I, I, I've just been, it hasn't left my head. <clears throat> I don't know how many of you play chess, um, but, but you can picture this even if you don't play chess, which is sometimes when you play with someone really, really good, there's a chess move which is always just like, it just blows your mind whenever you do it or someone does it against you, which is you're playing a game and all the action seems to be focused in one section of the board. And then all of a sudden, they bring a piece from the other corner of the board, and they slide it in, and it changes the entire game. 
And you're like, where did that come from? But it was on the board the entire time. It's on the board the entire time. You know, we interact with a lot of different people over the course of our lives. And we lose touch with them. And it's as if they don't exist because we so lose touch with them. In fact, believe it or not, in Jewish law, there's a blessing that you say if you haven't seen someone for over a year, if you haven't been in touch with them at all. So that means no emails or phone calls, right? There's a blessing that you say, which is, you know, bless are you, Hashem, who resurrects the dead. (laughs) Not only that, but if you want to get really intense, ready for this? If you see someone before Rosh Hashanah, and then you see them right after Rosh Hashanah, so it hasn't been a calendar year, in fact, it could be a day or so, you can technically make that blessing over them. Because what just happened, the Book of Life and the Book of Not So Much, right, got pulled out? And, uh, and so you have... The person was literally resurrected from the dead. We all get resurrected from... Every morning you get resurrected from the dead. Every time you wake up. But this idea that you can be... We're in touch with dozens or hundreds of people over the course of our lives. And the thing is, we're focused on the handful of people that we're sort of most closely in contact with. But you know what? God's chessboard, if we could really see our chessboard and we could see all of the people on our chessboard, and how God sort of just like, you know, I was... You're never going to believe this. You know who I sat next to at the Dodger game yesterday? That guy, you know, it's God moving that piece, that person over there, and then we started talking, and he's going to introduce me to that other person. Out of nowhere, may I am, from nowhere my salvation will come. It will appear to us as such. It will appear to us as such. But it was, it was always there. It was always there. So, so now, let's go back to this, this, this reversal of fortune, so to speak, that happens. Um, and it's very significant, I think, in terms of going from Tishabav to Tuba'av, from sadness to happiness. We'll talk about time now a little bit. We're getting there. You know, sometimes you have uh, 12-month years. Sometimes you have a leap year. There's a 13th-month year in the Jewish calendar. You know, the, the joke in Jewish circles is that the, holida- the holidays, the Jewish holidays are either late or early. They're never on time, right? <laughs> so, because, you know, how the lunar calendar and the solar calendar interface with each other, it's, um, you know, the Jewish date can, can fall in different places. Sometimes you have a whole year where you have a lot of double parshas, where in shul you read two parshas for one Shabbos. Other years, like this year, we have just one parsha per Shabbos. So, you know, there's a lot of kind of like flexibility in terms of the interaction of the calendars. So whenever you find something that's a constant throughout all of these variables, you've got to stand up and pay attention, okay? Because the Chachamim, the sages, fix this as a constant 
in order to tell us something very, very specific. They cut through all the variables of time in order to arrange this. One of the constants we experience this past Shabbos, actually last Shabbos also, Parshas Devarim, Sefer Devarim, the Deuteronomy in English, always is the Shabbos before Tisha B'Av. Always. Always. And it contains the word Eicha in it. In the Chumash, which is very chilling, because Eicha is, of course, the book of Lamentations that we read on Tisha B'Av, which happens, you know, I don't know how many hundreds of years later, but many, many, many. Um, and yet here you have it hinted at in the Parsha that's always read before Tisha B'Av. The Parsha after Tisha B'Av, always the same Parsha. Parsha's V.S. Hanan, which has the repetition of the giving of the Torah at Mount Sinai. So, so now listen to this. Hashem, after Tisha B'Av, and remember, what's, what is Tisha B'Av all about? Tisha B'Av is, we haven't gotten it right yet. <laughs> In a nutshell, right? We haven't gotten it right yet. And, and the sages give different explanations of how that happened. The most famous explanation, and the truest, I guess, is sinas chinam, which means causeless hatred. And you know, I shared, uh, I shared this with uh, the Hebra on, on, on Tisha B'Av, but it's worth saying again, a lot of people, causeless hatred is a, or free hate. <laughs> How's that? Free hate in specially boxed, specially marked boxes of Cheerios. <laughs> How many would you sell of those? <laughs> you know, so, you know, but... <laughs> Bless you. So free free hate would be another would be another uh, explanation, another translation of sinas chinam. Um, so so a lot of us say, well, I'm not guilty of that. If I hate anyone, I hate them for a reason, <laughs> a very good one, and it's not my fault; it's their fault. Okay, well, listen, that, that may all be true. I mean, it doesn't mean we can't make peace, by the way. Um, but, um, but that aside, I think that there's one area that, that I just want to raise again of something that I think a lot of people, good people, very good people, are guilty of in this, in this notion of, of, of free hate, that I just want to mention it just so people have insight into it. Because, you know, there's this great foundation that I learned from my dad, which is that when there's no insight, there can be no change. You have to know what needs fixing, otherwise you can't fix it. That's just common sense, but that in itself is an insight. So, so what, is the, what is the insight here? The insight is that there's a dynamic that goes on with a lot of people who I would describe as good people. And they should just be aware of it, which is that I am, I am friends with so-and-so. So-and-so has a fight with another person. So-and-so, my, my, my friend, is not friends with this other person. And as an act of loyalty and friendship 
and goodness even, I am also not friends with the person my friend is having a fight with as, as, as an act of goodness, quote-unquote, and friendship and loyalty. That's free hate. When that other person has not done anything to me, that's free hate. So I would just, we're still kind of building to the point I wanted to make, but I can't reference Sinas Chinam without offering this. And I would say two things. One, look into your own life if you are um, an observant Jew in that respect. <laughs> if you are observant of that notion of free hate. <laughs> and also, if you are, if you are the person who is demanding, because we're both parties often, if you are the person who is <clears throat> demanding or requesting or subtly suggesting that your friend should share your animosity, open yourself up to the notion of relieving them of the responsibility of doing that. Because that's, that, that's also something, even if you can't necessarily be at the point in your life where you can make peace with that person, which may very well be the case, and for possibly extremely good reasons, extremely good reasons, one thing that you might be able to do is relieve other people of the responsibility of participating in that, in that, uh, in that animosity, especially people who don't really share it. Okay. So now... <clears throat> There's another explanation given by the Chachamim why the base of Migdash was destroyed, also very famous. And I learned from Rabbi um, Brander uh, a very beautiful connection between these two, which is that we weren't making, the sages say, we weren't making the blessing over the Torah when we studied it. So, so, you see, if a person makes this blessing over the Torah and takes the Torah seriously, then they won't be able to fall into these other traps. So isn't it interesting that right after Tishabav, the first thing God does is put us back at Mount Sinai. Right after Tisha B'Av, He brings us all back, right back to Mount Sinai in Parshas V'yaz Hanan. And we get to receive the Torah again. We get to take upon ourselves, no, I'm, I'm, I'm accepting it upon myself. Again, God. It's the opposite. It's the fixing of not making the blessing over the Torah. Because that's the most primary thing, if we can reach to that place of really taking the Torah upon ourselves. It doesn't mean we're going to be perfect. It doesn't mean we're not going to make mistakes. You know, by the way, what's chumetz on Pesach? Chumetz represents evil, it represents ego, the worst forms of ego, not self-esteem. There's a big difference between self-esteem and ego. Have to have self-esteem. Ego is crazy applications of self-esteem, okay? You have to clean up all the bread. You got to get rid of all the chametz, right? 
Let me ask you a question, and it comes to me, I don't think I ever shared it with you guys, but it comes to me every single year. Have you ever, is there a human being who's ever gone through the entire year without leaving some crumbs of bread behind? (laughs) I mean, you eat a pretzel or a cracker, for goodness sakes, and you make some crumbs. You can't get through the year without leaving hummets around. We're human beings. But if one is sensitized, then to the extent that you leave crumbs, you try to pick them up. That's what it is. It's not like, ah, I spoke Lashon Hara, I blew it, what's the use? I tried, I spoke, what's the use? Let's just forget about the whole deal. It's not okay, so I did whatever I did. Let me just try to fix it to the extent that I can. Whatever it is. So the notion, the notion that we get right back at Harsinai. Now I want to share something with you that I think is very deep. Listen to this. This is now we're going to get to some gematrias. Okay, when Hashem gave us the Torah, it says in the Gomorrah, in Gomorrah Megillah, that, that there were two letters in the tablets where you saw miracles by. One, one letter was the letter Samech, which is like a circle, and the other is the Mem Sofit, the final Mem, which is like a square. Both of those letters, they're, 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 they're the only two letters that are completely enclosed in the Aleph base, in the alphabet. Now, one of the characteristics of the tablets was that they were engraved straight through. There were many miracles in the tablets, but they were engraved straight through, from one end to the other. Now think about it. If you make a samich, a circle, and you engrave it straight through, there's a little hole there, Right? A little, right? A, what do they call them? Duncan Munchkins? <laughs> the donut holes? There's a little hole there that should fall out. But it says, the Gomorrah says, that hole did not fall out. It, may, it remained miraculously suspended inside. And you saw that by the Samech and the Mem Sofit. Now, we're going to continue to develop this thought, but listen to this. Do you know what the, do you know what the name of the evil one is called in Torah? The Samech Mem. Isn't that interesting? Samul. This is like the guardian angel of Esav. It represents the the Yetzahara, like Mamish. So much so that in Sfarim, in holy Jewish books, they usually don't, people don't even usually say the name. They don't even spell it out usually. They just say, Samech Mem. Now, what's going on there, right? Didn't we just say, Samech and Mem were these two letters where you just saw two miracles by the giving of the Torah? Let's develop it some more. 
So I want to say, this is me talking, but I'm sure, uh, I'm sure other people have said There's a line that always blows my mind in the, uh, I think it's in Eov, and it's part of the uh, Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur liturgy. I'm just paraphrasing it right now. But the line is that Hashem suspends the world on nothingness. Blima, I believe, is the uh, word in Hebrew. And there's a whole Kabbalistic thing because Ma hints at a 45-letter name of Hashem. It gets quite intricate. But anyway, Hashem suspends the world on nothingness. So let's return back to the Samach right now. That little dot in there, that's the whole world. It's the universe. And it's being suspended on nothingness. Or if you want to say it another way, that dot in there is you or me. <laughs> you know? Like the Pintalayid, that little point in there. We're being miraculously sustained and upheld by God within His embrace, right? The Samach and the Mem, both are embraces. The Ari talks about that, that when you're in a sukkah, it's like you're being hugged, right? You're in an embrace. first letter of sukkah is Samach. So the whole notion of, of you or the universe or the world being that dot in the middle, where amidst this miraculous embrace. So now, we said that, we said that uh, this happened on the luchos, right? This happened on the tablets, this miracle. The Torah. So the gematri of Torah, says the B'nai Yisachar, well, this is known, but he's going to bring the following connection. The gematria of Torah, the numerical equivalent of the word Torah, is 611. The Samech Mem's counterpart, you know, in spirit, even in the spiritual worlds, you have male and female counterparts. The Samech Mem's counterpart is Lilith. Okay, this was the pre-Chava feminine energy, which, which uh, kind of was on the Samech Mem level in terms of energy, okay? The gematria of when you spell out Samech Mem, Samul and Lilith totals 611. It's the counterbalance to Torah. In other words, within, within the notion of Torah, there is the counterbalance which tries to uproot Torah. There are those forces which try to tell you that you're not being suspended, that your that your prayer hasn't been heard. That silence equals abandonment, which is not the case. Which is not the case. You know, one of the running conversations that I've had with all of my kids is the notion, and it's just great that every single one of them has really spent a good chunk of time trying to get this down. 
Now, God's there, but He doesn't have a body. Right, and I say, right, God doesn't have a body. He makes bodies. Right, so they get that. But He's invisible. (laughs) Right, He's invisible. But He's there. He's there. So, so the Torah, which is our gateway to God, to say the least, doesn't it totally make sense that, that the other side added up equals Torah? Because you know in Torah, what I, what I like to refer to as the physics of spirituality, that you always have at every single level the counterbalance to that thing. You, had Mo, you have Moshe and you have Bilaam, who the Gomorrah equate with each other on some level. You have, you know, the Jewish people in Amalek. And then you have the Torah and you have the Samach Mem and Lilith. Always, at every single level, even the most infinite level, well, not the most infinite level, which is God Himself, always have counterbalances. Okay, so now let's get back to time now. So, let's go to Parshas Yisro, which is the first account of the giving of the Torah. Um, and, uh, and you see something interesting there, which is before the Torah is given in Parshas Yisro, you have the whole account of Yisro himself, who converts to Judaism, after trying all the other religions of the world, he becomes a Jew. And you have him coming to, um, to Moshe Rabbeinu. And he gives advice to Moshe Rabbeinu about organizing a court system and everything else. And then after that, you have the giving of the Torah at Mount Sinai. Now, one of the things that I find very, very striking is that according to Rashi and many other commentators, that whole sequence is actually out of order. That really, Yisro came after the Torah was revealed, not before the Torah was revealed. And yet, if you look in a Chumash, and you open it up, first comes Yisro, then comes the Torah. But that in reality, excuse me, but that in reality, first the giving of the Torah came, and then Yisro came. So why is it out of order? So, what I would like to say, and we're going to apply it to our own lives, and we're going to apply it to Tuba Av and Tishabav in a moment, is you know we have this incredible principle of tshuva in Torah, the greatness of tshuva, the greatness of tshuva, which is that if I start keeping the Torah right now in my life, and I do it out of love then even things I did in my past get changed over into mitzvahs. Even things where I didn't serve God in my past, it's as if I served God in my past. It gets flipped over. And I always give this explanation because for some people that's a very hard thing to understand. It seems like a magic trick. Like, how does that work exactly? (laughs) Walk me through the logic. It's actually extremely logical. It's not even mystical. It's actually extremely logical why that works exactly. So let me explain it just quickly and then we'll apply it. 
everyone will agree, I think, that I am right now me, and I think this applies to all of us, I am right now the sum total of all of my experiences leading up to today. Right? So now, if that's the case, if in my past I ate a hamburger on Yom Kippur, but that somehow, in it's the twisty generation of Galus that we're in, if somehow that hamburger on Yom Kippur was part of my travel toward being an observant Jew today who's serving God from a standpoint of love, then even though when I did it, it was absolutely not a mitzvah. <laughs> In fact, it was the opposite. It was 100% an Avera. Nonetheless, from my standpoint today, since it's part of what led me to being who I am today, and if I'm an observant Jew today who's serving God out of love, that means that that contributed to my present spiritual level, which means in retrospect, that's now a mitzvah. Now, I'll just tell you as a PS, there, if one is just serving God on the level of Yira, which comes in many forms, the lower Yira is, God, please don't kill me today. <laughs> please let me get through the day. That's sort of like fear, just outright fear. Okay, that's... That's the lower level of Yira. The higher level of Yira is I am sensing the awesomeness of God and being in the king's palace. And I don't want to, you know, just, you know, mess up one thing because of my reverence for the king. Okay. If one serves God out of Yira, then one's past mistakes don't turn into mitzvahs. They just, it's like you didn't do them. But they're not merits. However, if one gets to the point of serving God out of love, then in retrospect, those things become actual mitzvahs. So, so what I want to say is, this whole time-bending notion that your present-day activities can influence your past activities is representing, through the observance of the Torah, is representing in this, represented in this astonishing way in the account of the giving of the Torah. Because an event that happened after the giving of the Torah, all of a sudden, is presented in retrospect. Time got bent. Yisro came really after the Torah was given. And yet, open up a Chumash, and you'll see the account of Yisro is before the Torah is given. I want to say that Hashem is hinting at with this, the fact that if one takes upon themselves the Torah, like Yisro did after the Torah was given, although it says that he had it in his heart beforehand, right? He heard about the splitting of the Red Sea and, and the war with Amalek, but nonetheless he shows up at Mount Sinai after the Torah is given, that nonetheless it's, it influences his activities earlier in his life. So it's presented 
earlier than how it actually occurred in terms of the timeline. To hint at, to hint at the fact that one can shape and influence their lives leading up to the present by the acceptance of the Torah. So now, let's get it back to Tishabav. Right after Tishabav, which represents the culmination of all the suffering and all the torment and all the mistakes that we've made, what does God do? He puts us right back at Mount Sinai with Parshas Vyas Chanan every single year. Meaning to say what? If we can re-accept the Torah and do tshuva as a people, then all of the past is going to change over. That Tisha B'Av itself is going to change over into a holiday. And in fact, you see that hinted at in the letters of Av. Now the Hasidic master, the Bnei Yisachar, actually points out something uh, very interesting, which is that if you look at the arrangement of the letters of the name of Hashem for the month of Av, it actually gives you a map, sort of like a, a, an x-ray, a blueprint, for the divine energy flow for this month. And you see the reversal of fortune that takes place within the month itself, as reflected by the letters. So the arrangement of the Yudke Vavke for the month of Av is actually Hey then Vav, then Yud, then Yud, then He. So the first two letters of the month of Av, which correlate with the beginning of the month of Av, is actually the name of Hashem in reverse. It's He and Vav. And we know that the the quality of the Yud Ke Vav Ke, this name of Hashem, stands for mercy. So when you see it starting to be spelled backwards, He, then Vav, you're seeing a reversal of energy, a reversal of this this, this energy of, of mercy. And of course that's openly evident in the, in the first nine days of, of Av, the, the, the famous nine days where we increase in um, all sorts of uh, uh, restrictions in terms of um, decreasing in happiness and taking on aspects of mourning, not shaving, uh, and live music and, and all sorts of things. Um, but then the next two letters uh, of the arrangement of the Yud Kei Vav Kei for the month of Av is Yud and He. And so you see that's the beginning of Hashem's name in its proper order. So the energy flips back over for the good. And the Bnei Asaskar points out something amazing, just how precise this is, that the gematria of Yud and He, the first two letters of Hashem's name, which occur at the end of the arrangement for Av, Yud and He in Gematria is 15, which correlates with the 15th of the month, which is Tuba Av, which the Gomorrah says is one of the happiest, one of the happiest days of the entire year. So, so here you see, like I say, a, a, a map for the month of Av. The first two letters going backwards, the end of Hashem's name, which, which signifies a reversal in mercy, and then the name, so to speak, straightens out and goes forward again with the Yud and the He signifying the beginning of Hashem's name on the 15th, where everything goes for the good again. Now, let me add one more thing, which is, uh, which is uh, something that occurred to me. Uh, we said that, that the, real, the real work, the real opportunity that Hashem gives us after Tishbav every year is 
the Torah portion of Yes Hanan, where we're back at Mount Sinai, where we read about the giving of the Torah again. So, so we get this opportunity to re-accept the Torah. And by doing so, we talked about the, the incredible miracle of tshuva, which allows us to basically flip over our past deeds and, and turn them into mitzvahs um, if we attach ourselves to Hashem out of love. So, so interestingly, in the calendar year, before Tuba'av, or on Tuba'av some years, but, but in the middle of the beginning of the month, and the reversal of energy that occurs, signified by Tuba'av, as the month progresses, in between we have Shabbos Nachamu, this Shabbos which comes in between where we read Parshas V'yes Hanan, where we go back to Mount Sinai. And I want to say that it's the reacceptance of the Torah at Mount Sinai which allows this energy, which is reflected in the permutation of the letters of Hashem's name for the month of Av, which allows us to flip it back over to the Yud and the Hay, which we said is Gematria number 15, which allows us to, to soar to the heights again. So it's not just willy-nilly, it flips over. There's a, there's a method to this. It flips over because we, we go back to Mount Sinai. We re-accept the Torah. And that's what allows us to, to, rectify, to rectify the divine light again and to channel the goodness back down into the world again. The Navi, the Prophet Zechariah, promises us that these days are all going to flip over and become holidays. And we know the Medrash teaches that on Tisha B'Av, Mashiach is born. So how do we understand that, that Mashiach is born? So, so you can understand it a few different ways. You can just take the literal definition that he's born, or I would like to suggest two other ways of understanding it, which is that all of the tshuva, because there's a lot of tshuva that's done on Tisha B'Av, that the tshuva that's done on Tisha B'av gives birth to Mashiach. And then, if you want to take it a step further, you can even say the following, that it gives birth to Mashiach, and Mashiach is literally born. <laughs> so you can have it on both levels. On a spiritual level, that we open the gates for it, and that could correlate with the actual birth of Mashiach as well. Okay, we'll stop here.